Tonight we're going to be in 2 Chronicles chapter 30. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. And as we go to 2 Chronicles chapter 30, we on Tuesday night we did two chapters. We did chapter 29 and 30, and they both involve King Hezekiah, one of those four great kings, three great kings of Israel, Hezekiah, Josiah, Jehoshaphat. And as we looked at him on Tuesday, we covered chapter 29, which we're not going to cover tonight, but it does have an influence and a setup for chapter 30, so I want to review a few things. His dad was the worst. Ahaz was his dad, and he was just the worst, and just a terrible politician, a bad man, and not a spiritual leader, and he not only did he, was he, he was very opposed to the Lord, and a couple weeks ago when we left off looking at him, it said that he shut up the doors of the house of the Lord. He literally, in his personal battle against God, he did what politicians so often do, he tried to completely eradicate and eliminate the worship of the living God in contrast to him and his rule. And so he closed the doors of the temple, and that's where we left off with Ahaz. But when Hezekiah, his son, came to power at the age of 25 and became king, he the very first week, the first few weeks he was king, the very first thing he did was go after those doors and reopen the doors to the temple. And then, after reopening the doors of the temple, he cleared all the rubbish out. He called the priests and the Levites together and said, hey, we got to get back on track here. And then, when we finished chapter 29, it says that he had set things in order and he had done it rapidly. He had moved with urgency. And that's part of the background to our text tonight because in the geopolitical social realm it was extremely dark for the people of God in the southern kingdom of Judah where he is the king at this time so we'll put him at about 720 BC and the northern kingdom the 10 tribes in the north Sennacherib the Assyrian powers the superpower of that day had come down and they were besieging Samaria in the north the capital of the northern tribes for three years so when Hezekiah came to power the siege was on and then the northern kingdom fell, and many of the people in the northern kingdom, the Israelites, the, their brethren of the other tribes, were taken into captivity, displaced, and it was a very difficult time. So when Hezekiah came to power, he's got to clean up his dad's mess and set that straight. He's got to find his own traction as his own man at the age of 25 being a king, and his own family. He's got a family, right? And then his role as, a, as the king a political position and a spiritual one, but one that was very much threatened by the times that he lived in because Assyria completely eradicated the northern kingdom. And we know, as we're going to see next week, those guys are coming to do the same thing to the southern kingdom of Judah. So as he came to power, it's like the good news is you're the boss. The bad news is we're about to go into bankruptcy. Like that's pretty much what the background is to him coming to power. And so that's important. And so he put all these things in order with the Lord right away in fact, we're told he even made a covenant with the Lord. He initiated a covenant with the Lord, which is very unique in the Bible. Then in chapter 30, he and the leaders got the idea that, hey, we need to keep the Passover. The Passover is our identity with the Lord. The Passover reminds us that we're under the blood, that there's a substitution for our sins. There's a way of forgiveness for our sins. The Passover with the unleavened bread reminds us that we're a people set apart to the Lord. We're not like the Assyrians. We're not like the Edomites. And we're definitely not like those who worship Baal and whatnot, the false gods. So he's like, we need to do this. But they were too late for the Passover. It already happened on the calendar. 
But you know, when times are critical and things are urgent, you need to rethink. You just got to find a way. Solomon said, a wise man scales a city wall and finds a way. And really, when we know that things are critical, they're important, and they require our attention, particularly spiritual things, moving favorably with the Lord in our life, for the people we influence, the people around us, then we got, we got to move. We got to go. Because eternity is always right there around the corner, and Hezekiah moved with that type of urgency in his life. So we come to chapter 30, and he had sent out these messengers proclaiming a Passover feast for the second month of the year. It's like, hey, we know we're, it's like celebrating Christmas in February. It's like celebrating Easter in July, like Memorial Weekend in October. It just doesn't seem quite right the way your mind would be trained to think about it. But we, we got to make things straight right now. It just reminds us that it's always going to be the right time to do the right thing, especially going forward with the Lord. Not to put off, but God knows our heart. So he's moving with urgency. He says, we're going to do a Passover, and we know we missed the bus. We're not going to wait a year to get right under the blood and get sanctified and set apart. We're moving on this now. Here's the decree. He sent out runners like the Pony Express all over from the farthest north of Israel near Lebanon to Bathsheba down by Egypt. And it was go, 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 move, move, move. Those runners, they look like Kenyans, you know, the, the distance runners. They're just moving, and they've got the decree, and they went from village to village to village to proclaim this Passover. And this is really important because it sets the stage for tonight as we pick it up in verse 10. So they went out and they exhorted the people saying, many people have already gone to captivity. Your children have been taken away. They've been displaced. But God promised if we do the right things, he'll restore these things to us and he will bring them back. But we need to turn to the Lord and trust in the Lord. And so we pick it up now in verse 10 with that background. So the runners passed from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh, that's the northern part of Israel, as far as Zebulun, up near Lebanon. But they laughed at them and mocked them. Nevertheless, some from Asher, Manasseh, Zebulun, humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. Those are, you know, tribes of Israel from those portions of tribes. Also, the hand of God was on Judah to give them singleness of heart to obey the command of the king and the leaders at the word of the Lord. Now, many people, a very great assembly, gathered at Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the second month. They arose and took away the altars that were in Jerusalem, the ones of idolatry, and took away all the incense altars and cast them into the brook Kidron. And then they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th day of the second month. The priests and Levites were ashamed and sanctified themselves. And brought the burnt offerings to the house of the Lord. They stood in their place according to their custom, according to the law of Moses, the man of God. So according to Deuteronomy, Exodus, the Old Testament, the law of God. The priests sprinkled the blood received from the hand of the Levites, for there were many in the assembly who had not sanctified themselves. Therefore the Levites had charge of the slaughter of Passover lambs for everyone who was not clean to sanctify them to the Lord. For a multitude of people, many from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover contrary to what was written. That is how it's supposed to be done in the Old Testament, what was written back in Exodus. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord provide atonement for everyone who prepares his heart to seek God, the Lord God of his fathers, though he is not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. And the Lord listened to Hezekiah and healed the people. 
So the children of Israel who were present at Jerusalem kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with great gladness. And the Levites and the priests praised the Lord by day, singing to the Lord, accompanied by loud instruments. And Hezekiah gave encouragement to all the Levites who taught the good knowledge of the Lord. And they ate throughout the feast seven days, offering peace offerings and making confession to the Lord God of their fathers. Then the whole assembly agreed to keep the feast another seven days, and they kept it seven days with gladness, another seven days. For Hezekiah, king of Judah, gave to the assembly a thousand bulls and seven thousand sheep, and the leaders gave to the assembly a thousand bulls and ten thousand sheep, and a great number of priests sanctified themselves. The whole assembly of Judah rejoiced also, the priests and the Levites, all the assembly that came from Israel, the sojourners who came from the land of Israel, and those who dwelt in Judah. So there was a so there was great joy in Jerusalem. For since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. Then the priests, the Levites, arose and blessed the people. Their voice was heard, and their prayer came up to his holy dwelling place to heaven. This is one of those chapters that's just beautiful. This chapter in its entirety, everything is good. The previous chapter, everything in its entirety is good. And we point that out because as we've been going through Second Chronicles, like we said, you just have to go back to chapter 28 to see how bad Ahaz was and the things that he did. So it's really refreshing with just the historical record of the Chronicles. It's just going to give the facts. It's just the legacy. So if it was good, it's good. If it's not, it's not. We can't change history. And so the lessons are there to be applied from good examples and to learn from the bad ones. But it's a really pleasant read as it was these two chapters on Tuesday night and this second half, the back two-thirds of chapter 30. When we think about this story, this record in context, Hezekiah is bringing about a revival and a renewal of God's people, unlike any that has happened from the time they were really established as a nation. David when he became king around, say, 950, uh, no more like 980, well, 1000 BC, when he became king, remember, he was first the king of Judah, and then the other tribes came together, and they were one nation, and then his son Solomon became king, but when he died, the tribes were split again, and they've been split ever since. It's been a couple hundred years, and all those things that God had written in the law of Moses in Deuteronomy and Exodus what's commonly referred to in our Bible as the law, the people had fallen from. Now, there had been little power surges of good things like Asa and Jehoshaphat and a few others, but now it had really been a while. And for the southern kingdom of Judah, they can see the far-reaching impact of sin and rebellion against the Lord by what happened to the tribes in the north. So this is, this is our background. It is really a call to... Repentance, renewal, revival. Now, as we think about this text for us, for the church, the body of Christ, I think we can use the word like return and be restored because that's really what this is all about. The doors were open. The rubbish was taken out. Passover was declared. It's a month late or a day late and a dollar short, but they're going for it. And the decree and the proclamation is, I've made a covenant with the Lord, Hezekiah. I'm leading you in the way. You see what the Assyrians have done and are doing, and we're next on their checklist. You've seen how, how it's gone for everybody. We, 
Hezekiah speaking, we live in a time of anxiety and uncertainty and fear. We come from a scary past, an uncertain present, and a terrifying future. That's literally the context of him sending out these messengers. And so when he sent those guys out, it's like, get your hustle on, get it done, and cast the broad net from Dan to Beersheba. It's for all who would come. And we know the day of the Lord will come to planet Earth. And we know the church exists to cast the broad net, the Great Commission. Ours is the Great Commission until the Lord returns. The apostle said to Jesus, what will be the sign of the times and all these things? And he said, you know, this gospel must be preached to all the nations. And then they're in Acts 1, they're like, hey, now that you're risen, and are you going to set the Father's kingdom? He says, set up the Father's kingdom. And he said, it's not for you to know the time of the Father's kingdom, but you shall be my witnesses, and you have the Great Commission. Now go out there and get things done. And we're still in that continuation of that statement there in Acts chapter 1. We're his witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That's who we are tonight as we gather as a church. So when I think about our lives tonight, maybe for us personally, it's, it's this text would say, hey, let's, get, let's return to the Lord. Let's put in things, because chapter 29 said he set in order things that were lacking. So if there's things that are lacking, let's set them in order. Even in the book of Titus, God said to set in order. Paul said he, he left people there uh, Titus in the island of Crete to set in order things that are lacking. Any given time, if we just, it's like our life's like a garden. If we neglect growing and taking care of nurturing the garden, those naturally become weeds. So there is that constant need to be refreshed in the Lord, renewed in the Lord, and restored in the Lord. Jesus himself said to the church of Ephesus there in Revelation chapter 2. He said, you do many good things. You have good doctrine. You, you, you defend the right things and you stand against the wrong things. But, you know, like, and you even agree to hate things that I hate. But, nonetheless, you've left your first love. So, return to those things and restore those things that are lacking. So, Jesus there in Revelation says, you've left your first love. That just place of joy in the Lord, the place of the Lord being first. Not an arduous thing, not a legal thing. Not a business thing where people take a marriage, it's a relationship, it's in love, and it's romance. And then they, you know, 30 years later, it looks like a business commitment, like a partnership. That's not what marriage is meant to be. And that's definitely not what serving the Lord is meant to be. It's never meant to be a legal relationship. It's always meant to be a loving relationship. But it's in our human nature to take the joy of the Lord and make it a legal thing. That's what people do. Make it a religious thing. Make it, I'm good, you do good to me. I'm bad, you do bad to me. And we lose that idea of just that unconditional love that he first loved us, and we love him because he did love us. While we're yet enemies of the Lord, Christ died for us to restore us to the Lord. And we lose that first love. So I think that's an appropriate text to merge with this idea because this was a call for the people of covenant. Hey, it's the day of the Lord. You've seen it's going down. It is going down. This is our time. This is our place. We got to go, and we need to respond, and we need to get serious right now with the things of the Lord. And Hezekiah was very serious about the things of the Lord. So it's a call to return and be restored. Now, many of you I know are doing great with the Lord, so maybe the context doesn't quite fit that way, but the principles are appropriate to be reviewed tonight as we think about it. When we think about being returning to the Lord and being restored, 
in the light of this context and these runners going out, it all came back to, and the focal point really of these two chapters is the Passover. And it's the blood. If you think about it, all the animal sacrifices. So Passover is about blood. And it's about the blood on the doorpost, the original Passover. The blood went over your house. And, you know, there in Egypt on the 10th plague, when the angel of the Lord saw the blood, he passed over. The, the angel of death passed over and they were spared. And that's why we have that saying that we're under the blood. We've not been redeemed with gold and silver, but by the precious blood of a lamb that was slain, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's why John the Baptist, the greatest of all prophets, when he saw that Jesus said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He used that analogy. And then Peter said in 1 Peter that we've not been redeemed with gold and silver, but by the blood of the Lamb. Only the blood of Christ is sufficient to cleanse us of our sins and only his substitutionary death is sufficient that we can be forgiven in him. He made God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. So he died in our place that we could become the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God. So when we receive Christ, not only do we pass from the death of the consequence of our sins, and he paid that price for us, but then his righteousness is imputed or reckoned to our account, and we're declared righteous. Now, the Passover lamb and the unleavened bread spoke of these things 1,500 years before Christ came into the world. Because that blood over the doorpost reminded every Hebrew in Egypt coming out of bondage that you got to get under the blood, and you have to be under the blood. That, that's what it spoke to him of. And the unleavened bread eaten with haste, bread without leaven, and leaven speaks of sin, is that set-apart life. So there for 1,500 years, the Passover feast reminded the Israelites, or were supposed to, that there, there's a substitutionary death, and under the blood they're delivered from death, and then there's a journey to be lived by faith, to be set free, and it's a, it's a sanctified life. And by the way, the word sanctified and set apart is all over chapter 29 prior to this. So to return and be restored is to come back under the blood and to understand the significance and the importance of being set apart for the Lord in our, with what he has for us in our life. And that is a New Testament application of this Old Testament story from Chronicles. A couple of points that we see, because it says they kept the feast there in uh, verse 12, 13. So they kept the feast of the unleavened bread and then the blood. They slaughtered the Passover lamb. So that's, that's Jesus. That's Jesus and the church right there. Okay, that's because that all speaks toward Christ. These are shadows of things that come, but the fullness is Jesus. So now three things for the rest of tonight we're going to look at here from this that we can take to heart. In this great event, because you saw gladness, joy, rejoicing, these are great words to have in the house of the Lord with the people of God who are getting restored to the Lord and being restored to the Lord. But the thing that just jumps out at me right away is where it says there in verse 10 that the, they, the, the runners were mocked. That the people... So people that are going into captivity, people that have had their sons and daughters taken from them into child trafficking, slavery under the hands of the Syrians, they're so hardened, they're so deceived, they're so given over to depravity that when the escape was offered, a type of Christ to come keep the Passover, they ridiculed and mocked it. Of course, we know when you share your faith in Jesus with people in the world, 
If you go door to door or just go down the beach or go out on the pier, you've ever done anything like that or even muster up the courage to share your testimony at work or, or, or anything like that with family, we know right away there are many people who will laugh and mock. And it can be discouraging. Governments work really hard and the devil behind governments and behind darkness works really hard to... The devil knows that Human beings are very susceptible to shame and embarrassment. So the the devil wants to always shame us to be associated with Jesus. That's why Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my father. If you deny me before men, I'll I'll deny you before my father. That's why Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for in it is the power of God unto salvation. But the devil wants to shame us because he's the accuser of the brethren, we're told in Revelation. So we, we have to... We have to understand that as we're going to go to the Passover feast, as we're going to keep the unleavened bread, as we're going to go from the northern tribes and make that 80-mile journey from Zebulun down to Jerusalem to do this, that as we make that stand and take that stand, there are people all around us who are going to mock and laugh and ridicule what we're doing. But narrow is the gate that leads to life, and few enter thereby. Jesus always has been and always will be the narrow gate. There has never been nor will there ever be a moral majority until we get into glory in eternity. And that is the moral majority because everyone in the kingdom is in glory. But until then, we have to realize when it comes to being restored, revived, and renewed, and stirred up by the Lord, there are always going to be people who ridicule and mock it, which means what we need to focus on is not the haters, as they say, but to focus on what God is doing. And as we think about just being in a right place with the Lord, we can think about this as what God is doing in, in you or in me, what he's doing through you and through me, and what he's doing around you and around, and around us. In other words, there's always, God's always working, and he wants to work in us, and he wants to work through us, and there's things that are affecting us around us that God is working in as well. And so what we need to focus on is what is God doing as opposed to what he's not doing. And particularly for Hezekiah, when you're a king and you're trying to rally the people, when you get the report of people laughing and mocking your messengers, then that, 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 that stings a little bit. That's going to hurt a little bit. Like if you try and do something great for the Lord and no one responds, you like that kind of hurts your feelings a little bit. And you learn early on, particularly if you're in ministry, that you don't look at what, what isn't happening. You need to focus on what is happening. And that's how it is with the Lord. A lot of times when we come back to the Lord, we're really discouraged by how much we've train wrecked our life, mistakes we've made, things we can't change, people we can't call and say we're sorry because they're in eternity, calls we can't return, debts we can't make right because they're just gone. And there are many things that can discourage us. And, and that can keep us from the things of the Lord, the failures of the past and even the fears of the present. But if we're going to go forward with the Lord... We need to see this phrase, nevertheless. And and that's an important phrase because it says that they laughed and mocked them, but then it says in verse 11, nevertheless. That's That's a key word in this text. Mine's actually circled and highlighted in two different colors. First time through, it got the yellow highlight. Second time through, it got it got the blue added to it. Nevertheless. See, when it comes to God doing a fresh work in your life, restoring things, renewing things, and just going forward. We can't be focused on what's all not happening. You, you, because what's not happening gets our attention usually much more profoundly than what is happening. 
You follow me? You're much more apt to see what's not happening, what's going wrong. Why, I always seem to have, everything goes against me. The refs, why do the refs, call, why does it seem like the calls are always going against us? Like, why does it seem like the umpire's calling that strike zone against me but giving a different one for the other guys? And you, you can begin to get this complex where all you see is everything that's not happening. We didn't get the job. We didn't get the raise. We didn't get the loan. We didn't get the house. They didn't accept our offer. And you just start, you start thinking, I didn't get into the college I wanted to, and this didn't work out that way. And, and you start looking at all the things that's not happening. What we need to do, and one of the most important disciplines as a disciple of Christ is to focus on what is happening. We need to focus on what God is doing. Nevertheless, yeah, we know there's haters and mockers and scoffers. Nevertheless, we need to focus on what is happening because right after it says that a great multitude was there, and again later on it says a great multitude. But you know, I find that I'm just so quick to see the mockers and the scoffers and not see the multitude or the greatness of what God is doing. In 1994, I had to learn a powerful lesson about this, and I share this story ever so often. In 1994, there in Virginia Beach, when our, the church that we were leading was at its zenith in numbers, I had this idea to do this big outreach at this main place in Virginia Beach, and we called it Youth 94. I did public school speaking with Daryl Green, the Hall of Fame cornerback from the Redskins at the time, and DJ Dozier, the Heisman Trophy winner from Penn State, the running back. We worked with an organization called Pros for Kids, and collectively the three of us went out in all these public schools of Virginia Beach, and, and actually, believe it or not, we did assemblies on purity. Our assemblies were about purity, sexual purity. <laughs> it was pretty amazing. And you can imagine how that was received in some cases. But nonetheless, like the text says, nevertheless, but nonetheless, we would get to share our testimony because people would ask questions, usually believers, and then we could share our testimony. Said, so, well, let's do a big outreach. Let's bring in this rap band. Let's do this big thing. I rented, we, the church, Calvary Chapel, Hampton Roads, 700 chairs, 700 folding chairs. I thought, we're going to do, DJ Dozier's our main speaker. We got these, this uh, multi ethnic DJ group, the Filipino, the black guy and the white guy. They were really good. They were 90s really good. They were hip hop, hop, hip hop, 90s style. They're the perfect fit. We had like a team of 70 people praying and planning. We promoted the event at all the schools, and DJ Dozier was the main speaker, strong Christian man. Nobody came. That's a summary, but people did come, but in my mind, nobody came. And what I always remember, I was so discouraged that night. What I always remember is I saw all the empty seats. Now, when you rent 700 seats, it's probably going to get your attention 650 empty ones. I just saw the scoffers and the mockers. I just saw what God wasn't doing. And I thought about how much money we put in the event. I just, as we went from school to school to school, I thought for sure these people are going to come. I learned a valuable lesson, by the way. People bring people. People just don't come. People bring people. And you look at something like John Randall in the men's conference. Why it keeps growing is he has a network. And he's networking with people. That's how you do these events. You don't just put billboards everywhere and think everyone's going to come to your party. It doesn't work that way. But I didn't know that in 1994. I was so discouraged and so distraught. All I saw was 650 empty seats. It was the next year when I was in Vermont, because a year later we had moved to Vermont, we're pastoring the church in Vermont. 
there in the hotel, the Econo Lodge, and I was working at the Sheraton Inn. And as I prayed for all these people, I no longer was praying for a congregation because I didn't really pastor one. There didn't really, you know, the congregation mostly was people that moved up there with me that I convinced to go be a part of this. And we're all scratching our heads after six months. But I did pray for all the people I worked with, and my prayers were very evangelistic. And the one day that I was coming to work about 10 minutes early, Owen the dishwasher was coming down the stairs the opposite direction. He looked really downcast. And I said, how are you doing? What's up? And he's like, I'm really discouraged. I'm 34. I'm a dishwasher. My life is nowhere. I'm like, hey, this is an opportunity to share the gospel. So I shared the gospel briefly. And then I said, do you want to get together for lunch? We did. He received Christ. At the same time, I taught the text where Jesus goes across the sea in the great storm for the one crazy naked man to come to Christ. And it, the Lord put it all together in my mind. The Lord put it in my mind this. I spent 14 months with my wife in Vermont to learn the most important lesson we can ever learn in life is to focus on what God is doing rather than what he's not. And in that, I learned the value of one soul. I led one person to the Lord and buried in Vermont. And I would have paid to baptize someone in Lake Champlain had I had the chance. One person. Oh, and the dishwasher. See, and this is like how it is here in this story. In, in being stirred up by the Lord and being used the Lord and being revived by the Lord, we can't be discouraged by what we don't see happening in our life. We can't be discouraged by what we don't see happening through our life. And we sure can't be discouraged by seeing by the things going on that affect our life that we have zero control over. As has been well said, the worst thing you can do is be in turmoil and anxiety over things you have zero percent of control over. That's the worst thing you can do, yet most people do that. Focus on the person you see in the mirror and the Lord above and what's entrusted to you. And so I just would, this is a good reminder, nevertheless, they, Hezekiah just focused on what God was doing and the people focused on what God was doing and they went for it. I mean, they've got, they've got the bright holiday in the wrong month. I mean, it's, it's Christmas in April. It just, it's weird. Christmas in April, Valentine's in November. It's just, it's just weird, it's like, but it's, it's just so odd. There's no precedent. There's never been a Valentine's in November, but they're doing Valentine's in November. That's what they're doing. And if you're just looking at the haters and the scoffers and the mockers, you'll just, you'll just be so discombobulated. You have to focus, we have to focus in our own lives going forward and how we see other people being touched by our lives to encourage them to go forward. And by the events around us like Sennacherib and people like that, that we have no control over. We have no control over Ahaz blocking the doors of the sanctuary for years and blaspheming against the Lord for years as the politician over us up until the time of Hezekiah, if we were in Judah at this time. But we do have control over what we're going to do when the Spirit's moving and to be a part of it and to heed the voice of the runners, to join with Hezekiah in the covenant and go all in. We need to focus. I just want to remind you tonight, body of Christ, WG, focus on what God is doing, not what he's not doing. Focus on here and now today, right now. Here, now, today. Can't change yesterday and tomorrow's guaranteed to no one. It truly is, you know, the 12th step basic motto of all recovery, one day at a time. And it's completely biblical, one day at a time. Great expectation, faith, obedience, humility, focus on what God's doing, not what he's not doing. 
And if we can learn that lesson, we do really well. Second thing we see in this text is it says that, that to everyone who prepared their heart. So we ha- the priest, it says that they were ashamed. As they began to serve the Lord the way they were supposed to have served the Lord, they felt shame because they hadn't been serving the Lord that way. They had allowed, as, as Ahaz had shut the temple, they'd shut their hearts to the Lord. No one had said like, hey, we need to, we need to do this. We should be serving the Lord. They were ashamed. They let the powers above them shut them down for what God had for them. And they had neglected their responsibilities. And they were, they were behind. Yet the Lord was doing a great work. And it says they were, they were spiritual leaders and they were ashamed by, the, by the repeat, how rapid things were happening and how unprepared they were for it. Nonetheless, they did get in line. They stood where they're supposed to stand and they did the Passover. The Levites were doing the Passover where I would think probably the priests normally did it because the priests are, are technically a higher level than the Levites, but they, whoever's available, just get in there and get it done. The Lord's moving, don't overthink it. I remember after the first Harvest Crusade, <laughs> that when Greg Lloyd did the first Harvest Crusade at Pacific Amphitheater, my wife and I had gone to it, and then he did a baptism at Little Corona, not Pirate's Cove, but the main beach there when you come down. And he, there's all these people, I mean, th- there's like 5,000 people. It was so packed. It was promoted on K-Wave, and Chuck gave it the blessing. And I'll never forget it. It was the biggest free-for-all you ever saw. I mean, it was like it blew a whistle, like, like the pier swim or something. Everyone just jumped in the water, and, and people were just baptizing each other. It was crazy. It's still the largest baptism I've ever seen. It's kind of like this. It's, yeah, go grab someone and dunk someone, you know? Like, the, you just, you just, it was happening. But the heart was everything. In this midst of these events, Hezekiah said this, for the multitude of people, so we have Ephraim, Manasseh, Iskar, and Zebulun, uh, and Asher listed earlier. Don't, you don't overthink things. You, you don't take simplicity and make it complicated. The faith of a child is how we're saved and going to heaven. The faith of a child is what's going to comfort you on the day of the Lord if you die at a very old age. It's the faith of a child. Jesus said, unless we have the faith of a child, we can by no means enter the kingdom. So we get so sophisticated and make things so complex. Well, how is this working? Like, shouldn't the Levite just be over here? The priest should be doing that. And, oh, my goodness, and those guys from Asher, we know those guys. Are we sure they're repentant? They were bowing down to Baal for, like, the last 20 years. That guy's dad was the leader. He funded the prophets of Baal. Like, you could just overthink all these things and, and get super religious and make it super complicated. But Hezekiah, what does he say? He just says, it says that these people had not cleansed themselves. So you could have all those do-gooders and legalists going like, that's not what it says in the Bible. That's not the way it is in the law. How can we be doing this? We're already a month behind. Or I'm not even sure any of this is sanctioned by the Lord because I'm the God of the universe because I'm judging all of you. You know people like that? You ever met anyone like that? <laughs> yeah. There's people that feel like they're, they're, they're judge and jury of the universe for God. Like they're God's man or woman to be the judge and jury. God would never do that. I say this all the time when I say that. Don't be that person. And if it's me, smack me. I'm like, oh, why'd you smack me? Because you're being that person. We never want to be that person. Those are the people Jesus rebuked. Those are the people who crucified Jesus. It wasn't the woman caught in adultery or desperate people or the leper. It was self-righteous people who were prideful and arrogant in their religion that did that stuff. And fortunately, they didn't get to run this day. 
There's no corporate ministry trying to run this thing. There's no corporate people saying, hey, we got to put finances on this. we got to manage this. We can brand this. We can do... No. It's a total free-for-all, like Greg Laurie's baptism out there, First Harvest Crusade. It's just a free-for-all. Who wants to mess it up? God's moving. He's moving freely. Yeah, okay, the Levite's over there. Why are those priests crying? Hey, don't say anything, but I think they're ashamed. That's why they're crying. They should be ashamed. Just leave them alone. Like, that's between them and the Lord. I'm ashamed for me. Let them be ashamed for them. Let's just, let's get right. Let's return to the Lord. Let's do the right things. So he says, it says that they had not done it right. They had not cleansed themselves. They had not done it right. Yet they ate the Passover contrary to what was written. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord, and there it is, by the way, it is biblical to say the good Lord, right? <laughs> the good Lord, may the good Lord provide atonement for everyone who prepares his heart to seek the Lord. So the issue here was the heart. There's the people's hearts. If the people's hearts were right, that's what matters. We see this with David and the showbread. When he was running for his life with his mighty men and Saul, his father-in-law, was trying to kill him, he showed up there where the tabernacle was and he took the old showbread. The men were starving. They had not eaten. Their, they needed food, sustenance. And he took the showbread and the priests were like, man, are you sure about this? He's like, hey, it's just bread. It's the Lord that makes it holy. It's just bread. David knew with the heart for God that God's concerned for people, not about bread. Jesus wasn't going to come die on the cross for a loaf of stale bread. Jesus died on the cross for people who are desperate and in need. And David understood that. Jesus, a thousand years later, remember when his disciples were doing the wheat on the Sabbath? And those guys came out, oh, you're not keeping the Sabbath. You're bad people. Your disciples tell them to stop, but their hands aren't washed. They were the legalists. And, and Jesus said, have you not read how David ate the showbread? So Jesus referenced David in that showbread to justify his apostles while serving the Lord on the Sabbath to eat wheat as they're going by. Now, the Bible never said you can't do this to the, to the wheat in the field. But those legalists took, keep the Sabbath day holy, and made 612 sub-commandments under it. Now, we know people like that. It's one commandment, then misunderstood, and now there's 612 of them. No wonder people don't want to come to church. It's one thing taken out of context and then expanded to a yoke that no one can carry. That's so liberating when Jesus said that the Sabbath, man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. Have you not read that I desire mercy above all things? That's what he said in the context. So from what David did with the showbread and what Jesus did with the apostles and how often he rebuked those people, it just becomes so clear that it's always about the heart. So when you think about maybe you're struggling, God knows your heart and he's for you. He, he's he's, he's the, the savior coach that's for you. He's for you. And he knows your heart and he wants, he wants to steer your heart, our hearts, my heart, in a good way. He's for the people that are around you that may seem a little kooky or weird in what they're doing trying to figure out the Lord, but he looks at the heart and he's for them. He's for them. When you're at a free-for-all baptism, it, down there at Little Corona, you just got to know that God's for them. We don't have to put our fingerprints on it. We don't have to always explain it. Just let God be God of the universe who sent his son to die on the cross for our sins 
and rise from the grave for our hope and justification, who sent his spirit to save people, and we just got to let God do that. In our own life, when we look in the mirror, through our life, when God's reaching people, and put that over the world that we have no control over, you just go like, how do these people get away with that? They're not going to get away with it. They just seem to get away with it. How can they have so much power? Well, when they're in the grave, they won't have the same power. They'll go the way of all men, as will we. So focus on the heart. Focus on what we can, what, what God is doing. Focus on our heart and, and, re, and, and realize and give people room to grow as God works in their heart. That's the, that's the key here. Hezekiah, it says he was like his father David when he's introduced to us in chapter 29. And how he handled this free-for-all Passover just shows that he had the heart for the Lord. He understood the heart of the Lord. That God is for people, not against people. And he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but he sent his son to die on the cross to redeem the wicked. And this free-for-all Passover, a, a month late, with crying priests and all this other stuff, Hezekiah's like, Lord, just, just have mercy. We didn't, we, I, we're just doing the best we can right now. Have mercy on us and bless this. And in case we're wondering, did God answer that prayer? Yes, we get it that he did. So it shows us the heart of God. And then the last thing, we just love this about Hezekiah. Verse 22, it says, Hezekiah gave encouragement to all the Levites who taught the good knowledge of the Lord. And isn't that what everybody needs? Don't we all need encouragement? We always need encouragement. So much of the world and life and the devil just beat us down, whether we're trying to serve the Lord or not. But the Lord is for us. That's why it says in Romans 8.31, if God be for us, who can be against us? The Lord is for us. When we come to Christ, our battles are his battles. Those struggles are his struggles. And he's working in and through us for his good pleasure. So he wants to encourage us in going forward in repentance and renewal. He wants to encourage other people in going forward in repentance and renewal. And he definitely doesn't want us to be discouraged by things we have no control over. He doesn't want our minds filled with all this stuff that we have no control over that would create anxiety, that would create fear, but he wants us to be encouraged. Next week when we get to the siege of Jerusalem, we know that the Assyrians were like, they, they spoke in the language of the Israelites to intimidate them, shouted from there across the wall to cause fear and anxiety. But Hezekiah said, don't say a word back to them. That's how we have to treat that stuff. That's how we have to treat all those things that are contrary to the Lord Jesus Christ, taking captive every thought that is contrary to the Lord and the glorious gospel. We can't get baited to be upset and pulled out of our lane and off our game by things we have no control over that discourage us. We need to look up, look in the mirror, be encouraged. We can do this, because if God be for us, who can be against us? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Let's go, this day, right here and now. That's what the Lord has for us. He's always going to want to encourage us. When you wake up in the morning, any morning, when you belong to Christ, no matter what that day is going to hold, no matter what the day before held, or what fear is lurking around the corner, or anxiety, uncertainty, just know God wants to encourage us. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians that when someone prophesies in the New Testament, they speak uh, edification. That's to build you up. That's encouragement. Or exhortation. That's to stir you up. You can do this. Let's go. Fighting, you know. Or comfort. Like, you got this. Hey, look. 
Everyone throws an interception. Everyone gives up the home run. Everyone falls on their face on the ice. Everyone blows the sail. Hey, listen, we got this. Let's go. Let's get back in. Let's get back at it. Let's get back at life. Let's be fruitful. Let's look up. Let's go. Let's go get it. Because we know with the Lord, there in Philippians chapter 3, we're told we forget what's behind and we press on to what lies ahead. To the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's always forward, onward, and upward with the Lord. And when you look at this story of Hezekiah and these events that happen rapidly, that happen with so much uncontrolled elements to it, it's definitely, they weren't hindered by the failures of the past. They simply embraced the responsibility of today, each one, their family, and the nation, and they went forward. They weren't hindered and crippled by the fear of what was coming their way with the Assyrians coming, who were undefeated up to that time. Until they besieged Jerusalem, they always won. They, they, we have it here now. And, and they, they enjoyed their Passover with the crying p- priest and the, the hardworking Levites. They had gladness. They said, this is so much fun. Let's do an extra week. Let's do the bonus week right now. We're staying on this Jesus vacation for another week. And they did. And so what we find as they allow themselves to return to the Lord, as they allow themselves to be restored, as they watch God move in other people's lives to return to the Lord, and other people's lives to be restored, and as they gave to the Lord those things they had no control over, and even in the chaos of what God was, the chaos of humanity responding to favorably to the move of the Spirit, we are told that the prayers were answered of Hezekiah, and that there was great gladness, they praised the Lord. They were singing to the Lord. The, the, the Levites were encouraged to keep teaching the knowledge of the Lord. They had unity. The assembly rejoiced. There was great joy. And nothing, nothing had ever happened like this before. So the next time you see something in the news, or you hear something, or you look in the mirror and get discouraged, just know this. Eyes not seen or ear heard those great things God has for us. And the best really is yet to come. And if it doesn't come in our life and time, that's okay, because this is definitely coming in eternity. Because everything is about eternity. So we just got to keep the right perspective. We got to keep the heart right and have the right motives. And we just got to know that the Lord is good. And we need to just be encouraged and just keep going forward. So what we can control with our hearts in the Lord, let's do it. What we can't, let's pray for it and give it to the Lord and just keep moving forward onward and upward that's the lesson because they got a dark day coming i mean if this is season one season two is really tough they've got they do have a dark day coming and there is a doom and gloom that's just a couple generations away but not this day not this two-week thing this is here and now that's what's so important for us to stay in the here and now yes and amen